Okay, rolling. You're listening to Splendid Chaps by Request, recorded live at the Penny Farthing Cafe in Northcote, Melbourne, on the 24th of December, 2013. Yeah, I know. I'm sitting next to you. We're right here, Ben. Yeah, we can hear you. We know where it's being recorded. Well, look, you, you, you guys have both had a go at doing the, the intro. I just wanted to do the intro. Because Petra's done it all year, and you did it for the Christmas yeah. one, John. Just one, one, one. Also, that was the voice of David Ashton there. It was. Hi, Dave. Hello. Yay, we, he we, speaks. We didn't know you had a voice until now. Yeah. I just gesticulated wildly at you, and you did stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's our sound guy normally. Uh, I'm John Richards. I'm Petra Elliott. I'm Ben McKenzie. And I'm David Ashton. Yay. And we're splendid chaps. Where are we and why, Ben? Well, we're in the Penny Farthing Cafe in Northcote because this is where it all began, John. This is where we recorded episode zero, which was basically just you and I and a little bit of David chatting to each other about what Splendid Chaps was going to be. And that was just a sound test, really, wasn't it, to see that we could actually record and upload it? Yeah, and then we rather (laughs) arrogantly decided to release it as one of our podcasts. Um, And Petra wasn't even born then. No. So it feels fitting that we're back here for the last thing we're going to record for Splendid Chaps. Full circle. And why is this episode being done? Because, good God, why won't this podcast die? (laughs) Haven't we done the final episode yet? Well, we've we've done our final live episode, John, but this is an extra episode we're recording because of our possible campaign. So some of our supporters gave us quite a bit of money, thank you very much, um, in order for us to go up to Sydney and record a live show there. But one of the, the bonus rewards for that was that we would do a by-request show where we'd talk about topics requested by some of our supporters. And we had three people give us a nice amount of money. And what we do is we just roll around it at home. We yeah. just throw it on the bed and just Certainly roll around. We don't spend it on going to Sydney. <laughs> oh, wait, we did do that. Yeah, we did um, that. <laughs> but no, they, in, in return for their very generous um, uh, donation towards the campaign... We uh, let them choose one of the topics, and in fact, one of them um, gave us a very nice donation indeed, and was very lovely, and had three suggestions, and we decided that the fair thing to do, because he'd given us so much money, was to do all three of his suggested topics. Uh, And then we had one slot left over, because we were going to do six topics, each with ten minutes, and uh, so what we did was he let all of the possible supporters make suggestions, if they had one, and we had um, six very nice suggestions for topics, and then we we asked all of our possible supporters to vote on them and see which one they wanted us to do. My God, that sounds democratic. I know. That's my influence. Sorry, everyone. That does sound very spreadsheety, I must admit, which does sound a bit Ben. Uh, I did count the votes... Two different ways. <laughs> what? Um, I did do I did do preferential runoff voting in the Australian oh, style, dear. and I did oh, weighted. That's worked so well. I did weighted voting uh, in terms of if you voted first preference, you got three points towards that topic. Okay. There's the same winner. Did either it change? Way. Okay. You know, no, with the different. Not a lot. Um, the first and second place getters were the same. Okay. So there you go. yeah. And just before we start to give a word picture to those at home, I want to mention we're at the back. It's a beautiful day in Melbourne. It is a blue sky as far as the eye can see. There's a lovely breeze. Uh, it's, Little ginger Benji Bobo has got his sunscreen oh, he on. He does. He's covered in sunscreen. Safe. Um, and there's, there's, yeah, there's vines. And he's just been coffee. riding up a massive hill. This, this <laughs> cafe, as I think I mentioned in episode zero, is right near John's old house. And it's it's on top of a really tall hill. I've moved house since we did episode one. Yeah. It's amazing how much has changed in that one year. I know. Yeah. I, I've got a beard now. Wait. <laughs> I'm shaving off my beard. I've got a beard now. Yes, that's now true. everyone has beards. We're you've, all evil. You've grown it in the week since we did the Christmas special, Petra. But let's start. Let's start. Let's start. Okay, make, make, the thing happen, make the thing happen. Well, shall we start with the first from Andrew Waddington? He would like us to speak about the influence of 18th century French furniture on Doctor Who. Yes. <laughs> 
He really did request that. Okay, no, we're I, going think, I think now. he requested a joke, and we went, yeah, all right, we'll do that. <laughs> no, but you got really excited about it, John. I, look, I did get a bit excited. This is the one question today I actually did some research on, because Nerd. I I know I thought in my head, look, when Doctor Who started, in the Hartnell years, there was a lot of furniture in the TARDIS, and... It's one of the. I don't think we ever see that much furniture again. We see there's a hat stand as a kind of ongoing thing, and I was convinced that some of that furniture must be 18th century, and I was wrong uh, because this is some of the stuff you will find in Hartnell's TARDIS if you're looking for it. There is a clock made by W. F. Evans. It's an eight-bell quarter-chime skeleton clock in the form of Westminster Abbey. It's circa 1875. That is wildly specific. There. That is very specific. There is a chair, which is actually a wooden copy of the um, of the throne of Knossos, which was the 15th century BC Minoan. Yes, uh, which was um, only uncovered in 1903 by Arthur Evans. There is a copy also of the, of the Knossos, the wooden copy, also at uh, Oxford, and there is one in the International Court of the Hague. But uh, Hartnell's got one. And did he and, steal it from the International well, Court and, of the Hague? And it's actually there too, into Troughton. So it's a. That's quite a long-running one. There's an armillary sphere, which I then found a correction is actually an armillary sundial, which has been common since the 16th century. It's a navigational tool. There's, now, you mentioned this, David, some freaky weird bird, carved bird sculpture thing, but I couldn't work out what the hell that was. Yeah, it, it, I, I think it looks like a lectern, but, but in the shape of a bird, or at least it's a, some sort of pillar with a... Yeah, it's a sort of a stand and they put a, things on top of Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a folding medieval chair that shows up uh, later on. Now, but what I thought was interesting is I was thinking about this whole antiques thing and I was thinking, the Doctor is a traveller in time. So, all furniture is surely an antique to him. Yes. No Either that or very, very contemporary. Well, or, exactly. or all furniture is from the future. But is it antique? This is my, this is my thought about this, actually. If you go back to the 18th century and here. you buy... Ginger for the ginger. They're just giving us ginger beer and coffee. It's, I like it here. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? <laughs> go on. Uh, but if you go back into the 18th century and get a chair from the 18th century, is it an antique? Because it's brand new. Well, that's what I was wondering with this. And then also when I said about the whole antique thing, there's also at least one 50s Swedish-style uh, wire chair in the TARDIS because mm. we see it when Barbara tries to stab Ian in the face with some scissors. Uh, and that <laughs> That, of course, is actually quite a contemporary piece for when it's recorded. But exactly, is the Doctor seeing that as an antique? Has he picked that up somewhere going, oh, I love this old antique 60s furniture? Well, I, I read some of that as being part of the TARDIS's sort of interior. Although they've got the fold-out beds and stuff, which is not very No, but the fold-out century. beds may also be... That's what occurred to me. Maybe yeah. the fold-out beds are also an antique that he's picked up going, oh, I love these 28th century antique chairs. Maybe the whole white roundels look is, is like, you know, classic... Uh, it's considered antique on, on um, Gallifrey. Gallifrey. It's classic 29th century or something. Yeah. Which yeah. is my question, I guess, is as a time traveller, can anything be antique? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I think if you, if you pick it up in the 20th century and it's from the 18th century and it's in good nick, then I guess... Cause so it's, where, it, it's relative to when you collected the item? Well, I think that's... Because isn't that what... That's what vintage and antique and... Uh, what's the other term? Um, uh, there's uh, another one which I've forgotten. But they, they have specific meanings in terms of how old the items are. So something that's vintage is, I think, from the early 20th century, and something that's antique has to be from before that, I think. So oh, okay, because I was going to say, if it's to do with age, though, if it's just a question of, you know, if it's yeah. over 100 years old, does that mean that whenever the TARDIS lands somewhere, the furniture becomes either wildly <laughs> futuristic, contemporary, or antique? Oh, frame of reference problem. Oh, there's one for <laughs> Einstein. That would make continuity a real hard thing. Now, David, you also did some research, I believe, for this topic, oddly enough. Antique furniture. I also thought of the TARDIS, but the way I remember it, and this may just be one of those things where your memory plays tricks on you, is that the Target novels always described 
the the TARDIS interior is having antique furniture dotted around, um, including an Ormolu clock. And and it would just throw in this reference to an Ormolu clock, like you knew what that was. And you know, from context, it was obviously a kind of old clock. So I, for this, I, I, I had a look and find out what the hell Ormolu is. And I, I've no idea if I'm saying it correctly even. Um, but uh, it turns out it's it's uh, it's a way of gold plating stuff like like gilt, um, which they used to do in the 18th century. So it is it is period correct for this question, um, and they stopped doing it because it involves mercury, and um, you make a paste apparently out of mercury and gold, and then you you burn away the mercury or something, and and it um, people who do this tended to die young. But um, but the clocks were very pretty. So we have to the ask, clocks were pretty. Yeah. What's the trade off here? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Human life versus beautiful artifacts. Surely there are third world children we can use for this now. But um, <laughs> Ben's making the face. I'm doing the face. Because <laughs> the show comes out of a time, uh, the BBC is uh, a place that makes amazing period drama. Yeah. Um, the Nossus chair, by the way, turns up in Doctor Who all the way up until, like it's even in the secondary console room. Uh, and clearly they have a stockpile of amazing antiques and they, you know, for period dramas. And so they use them in the show. Uh, although, as we go into the Trout era, the antiques start falling away because, of course, it's space age now. And yeah. everything's about being new and shiny. Metallic. And it's interesting. And metallic. And after that point, they only ever shop like the hat stand. But it's interesting that, that Harlow really the embraces stand. the antique idea, which then disappears once we get into the late 60s. Yeah, that's true. And you never see it again after that period. No. Like, he's, he doesn't seem to have... I mean, anytime he refers to stuff in the TARDIS... He refers to it, you hardly ever see it. There's occasionally, though, I, I remember, I think it was in Logopolis where um, Edric is, is, is measuring the TARDIS that they've materialised around, mm. and, and it's, it's like an antique little stepladder thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But it's interesting, I think after that point, though, the show itself, I think actually pop culture changes, so mm. everyone wants to be contemporary. I think at the mm. beginning of the 60s, mm. old things have a value. Yeah, it definitely would have suggested of another world or of another era to but, have But also, I think, a value to... Because people, you know, really liked antiques. Like, people yeah. enjoyed them. By the late 60s, like, everyone wants to be now. Yeah. And I think that never changes after that, that period. That was part of Hartnell's character, too. Like, there's that moment in Unearthly Child where he comes out into the junkyard and he spots the painting and he says, oh, that's it's all dusty, but it's rather nice. I can't believe I haven't seen that before. And, and it's giving him that idea that he's fascinated by things from other times to add to his sort of mystery and then once we've seen him traveling around through time you don't really need that anymore the doctor as collector is actually a really interesting idea mm. you know if, if that if that was uh, i mean that's not you know what we've been told as character but that's one of the reasons he left was to go and just pick up nice things just check but, stuff but out. that's what the meddling monk was doing well, it yeah. wasn't, wasn't he, he interfering he was though, at the things. same time. He was trying to improve history, but then when he comes back in the uh, the big Finnish audios, if this is not too much mm. of a spoiler, there is a bit where he is basically stealing great artworks from mm. history but because I think he, even otherwise in, they'd be destroyed. Even in the Time Meddler, doesn't doesn't he have a TARDIS full of stuff? Oh, I think he does actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 They, would, they sort you? of refer to it. You know, it's yeah. not seen, but I would. I, mean, that's the thing. I was thinking with time travel, one of the first things I'd do is go shopping in the 70s just to see what it was like. See, but I'd, I'd <laughs> you know, I'd just be fun. Because it's yeah. just that thing of, it would be similar but different. Actually, I, I was thinking this the other day when I was in, I was in a large department store. Um, it was Kmart. And uh, <laughs> I was thinking about the fact that if I was in a 70s Kmart, there'd be like a record section with actual vinyl. I, I could just get be... flares, John. I could get flares in any shop in high school. <laughs> but street. it would just be curious to see the... the uh, what, what's funny, John, is that the you were, were alive in the 70s and probably went shopping. I probably did. But I was very young and don't remember. That's what I mean. Going to see Go just the now. things that would be considered normal items on the shelf. Yeah, that would be amazing. You know, because back in the 70s, you could get like you know, cocaine just in kilo packs on the shelf at any Kmart. 
Well, it wasn't know, called Kmart back then. No, it was called Cocaine Mart. <laughs> but the thing I think now about the new series is why you won't see a lot of antique stuff is that retro now is completely oh, different. Oh, that's the Cloister Bell. You've got one minute. Oh, no. Sorry, well, go well, on. While the Cloister Bell is ringing, I think in the new series you see old things, but old things mean stuff from the 60s and from the 70s. So you don't see 18th century antiques, but the doctor might wear, you know, he's wearing his, you know, Matt Smith wears his tweed and he's got his, like, horn rim, you know, um, well, not horn rim, the tortoise shell round spectacles. And that's about as retro as you're going to get. So it's not going to be antiques anymore. When they did, um, was it uh, sorry, um, Dalek John? one, sixties Dalek one, uh, Sylvester McCoy? Oh, uh, Remembrance of the Daleks. Yeah, was that not the first time they did a whole story set in a period since the show had been on air? Like it was the first time I think that that contemporary had become period. I think you might be right. Yes, and of course that's now I think. Oh, oh, oh! Evil of the Daleks and Faceless Ones were set at the same time as the War Machines, which made them set one year in the past. Ooh. That sounds amazingly factual. Yes. <laughs> those, those, Thank three, you, David those three stories all happen simultaneously. Did the doctor ever actually visit oh, 18th that's century that's France? That's no, 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 no. We'll never know. We'll never know. <laughs> no, cliffhanger. Maybe you can post on the comments section on the website or something your thoughts so that people can come and read them. Well, that went better than I expected. That was great. Amazing. <laughs> Ten minutes about furniture. Wow. Yeah. I think, I think we all learned a little. We all grew I, a little. I learned yes. something. I'm not entirely sure what it was, but also, I learned it. John's also, penchant for shopping in the 70s. The coffee here is extremely good. Um, Petra. Well, so Andrew Waddington, our favourite, favourite, favourite person. Well, actually, no, he's one of our favourites. He also wrote, how does a show that is unapologetically British in nearly everything it does become so popular all over the world? Aussies. Well, we've had 40 million repeats on Channel 2 to hook in the over 30s, so that's understandable. But everyone else is a mystery to me. What is it about a clever, time and space wandering vagabond who turns up in London more often than not that makes such an impression on the rest of the world? For example, in Voyage of the Damned, the Tenth Doctor says, Only Britain is great, when correcting Mr. Copper. Let's discuss that, shall we? Well, to be fair, uh, when he does say that, he is correcting him because he also refers to Great France and Great Germany. Um, but it is, it is the subtext of, yeah, I think Britain is great, and I keep coming back because the Doctor is very British for an alien who's from another planet. He always sounds, well, he sounds like he's from somewhere in the British Isles. So does that mean that aliens think that British are the easiest ones to mimic when they're trying to be human? Well, isn't, isn't the joke meant to be the, the Gallifreyan accent just sounds like an English accent to us? That doesn't explain Sylvester McCoy or Peter Capaldi. I wanted to, with this question, I feel there's a difference between old and new who in this one, which yeah. I know, I know, don't go to the dichotomy again, but um, I feel, because I feel new who is actually way more popular than yes. old who ever, like old who was, was obviously hugely popular in, in the Commonwealth, you know. But they, they did feel that it was appropriate to, you know, shoot the telly movie in America and there was a real American centric. But it didn't work. I think True. it was the interesting thing. There was a feel that didn't work. And I think it's actually because the new series is, um, I think it trades off the English thing a yeah. bit. I think it's. I think the old series did to a certain extent. Like I, certainly during the 70s era. I was going to say um, that didn't start happening till the 80s when it started to be big in America and they started having these big conventions over there. That was when the Doctor Who started to play up its Britishness yeah, a bit. No, I think in the 70s it was just, it was just English. Whereas mm. then it became like brand UK. 
You know, yeah. like even, I think probably when you start with the cricketing whites, you know, when you that's have, true. You know, that's very much branding. I think at this point now he's deliberately an English eccentric. Yeah, well, because Peter Davison's doctor, when you go back and watch it now, he does come across very much as a wandering English aristocrat. And, and like, not just in the fact that he dresses like he's playing cricket and in does, in fact, play cricket, but yeah. also in the way that he talks to other people. And, and I think the new show plays that up. I, I think the new series is closer to, well, oddly enough, to, to Richard Curtis, to Love Actually. And, you know, I think it's, mm. it's a Love Actually view of Britain. Right from Rose, you've got all those very touristy shots of London. Yeah. The spaceship crashes into Big Ben in Aliens of London. And I think it's, it's set up in that way, using the UK in the same way that, say, a Woody Allen film would, would use. I don't think it's necessarily saying anything about the real UK, but presenting it as a... I mean, even down to, there was that thing about... Um, Cardiff had this list of stuff they would do to make you think that Wales was the UK, and red was the London colour, which hmm. was interesting. Oh, like buses and, and I just signs said, I said and things. Cardiff was like the UK. I apologise. Cardiff was like London, I meant to say. I knew uh, what you meant. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Don't write in. Um, but yeah, there's nothing about... Apparently red was the colour of London, and so they, were, they would put that throughout to remind you you were in London whenever there was a London scene. So inside the Houses of Parliament would be lots of red carpets and things like that. And I think that's the thing about it. It's a, it's a branded idea of London that is sellable internationally in a way that the 70s version was a much minor hit because that just happened to be a grimy town that was London. Yeah. As opposed to this shiny, shiny film London. And of course, they hardly ever visited, like after the Pertwee era, there's not a lot throughout the 80s of coming back to Earth. Like they do it every now and then, but it's still a lot of weird alien planets mm. and going to strange places. Whereas in the new like, series... Like France and Spain oh, and weird, weird places like that. Yeah, weird. Somewhere bizarre. Yeah. Lanzarote. Yeah, and also it's, it's a romantic. He's a romantic lead now as well, which is again I think much easier to sell. So I think that's the interesting. You can see that that, that it's definitely I think the internationalism of, of has changed. Yeah, I think in the old days it was we bought it because it was made by England and we were all Commonwealth countries who did whatever. Yeah. You know. Well, the ABC bought it essentially is how it worked for Australia, but, but all and, those and other for countries, all, all, yeah, all the African countries. There was a sort of suggestion of all these you know kind of bits of the empire that now aren't mm. bits of the empire anymore, and you know there was a sort of. Hmm. Yeah, a lot of people would buy it because people looked up to Britain. I wonder, this is something actually I wish I'd had time to research, but I don't know if there's any evidence of it being big in other sort of ex-Commonwealth or current Commonwealth countries. Like, does, is, does Doctor Who have a big audience in somewhere like India or, you know, Tanzania? Or, that's a good question, because it does in New Zealand and Australia, obviously. Yeah. Canada less, uh, but still I think had it. Yeah. Uh, America, it was just a sort of PBS well, it hit in the 70s points. there, and it was sort of that middle Tom Baker period mm-hmm. around the key to time. But even then, I don't think it was ever huge in it the was, same... It was a huge cult hit. Like, it was the right. biggest thing on PBS. Like, PBS... I mean, that's why, you know, even Patrick Troughton and the other doctors would go over and do conventions, partly funded by PBS, because then they would appear on the PBS pledge drives yeah. and say, please give us money, because that's how public broadcasting works in America. The government doesn't give them any money. It's kind of like Triple R or community radio here. Mm. Um, so it's yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting kind of phenomenon. And now it, it really didn't hit big in America this time around until Matt Smith. That was when they did the big launch on BBC America and really pushed it. I mean, they tried when when the new series came back in two thousand and five, but that was when it really took off. It, it was on the Sci Fi Channel originally, I think. Yeah, and then it became on BBC America, and so they put a lot of money into promoting it and it worked people love it and I think it's partly also the kind of show that it is there's a real sort of love uh, for that kind of show that is a bit weird and, and a bit exotic and has like an unusual male lead so on Tumblr for example they, they refer to the big three 
fandoms on on the internet that are obviously come largely out of America um, as uh, they call it Super Hulock because it's um, supernatural. Doctor Who and Sherlock, <laughs> and those are the big three shows. and And Sherlock came out around the same time as the start of Matt Smith Doctor Who, and they sort of hit massively big then. And Supernatural had been around for a few years, but that's when it sort of hit its peak. So I, I think it's partly it's not the Britishness now that makes it so popular in America, although that's certainly a, a component of it. It's also the kind of TV show that it has become as the modern show. It's very much that modern drama, which is all about those interpersonal relationships, about weird stuff happening that encourages a fan culture of you know shipping certain characters and and really responds to that sort of fandom. So it's yeah, it's a it's a weird mix of things I think, but the Britishness is definitely a component. Oh, there's the timer. Sorry, boys. We're going to have to wrap that one up. So. <laughs> so harsh. I don't, I, yeah. Well, you know, you guys could talk forever. If I wasn't here to rein you in, my goodness. So let's um, move on to some of the topics suggested by our other possible backers. 36 of our possible backers did vote and they chose one submitted by Rebecca Dominguez. Now, Rebecca writes... Old Doctor Who foreshadowed things that would, hopefully, happen in later seasons. For example, in Trial of a Time Lord, the Valiard is revealed to be the Doctor at the end of his regenerations, wanting to live longer and willing to do anything to survive. We're rapidly approaching that point in the Doctor's lifespan, and I had hoped that John Hurt's character would, would be that equivalent, but it would appear not. In Battlefield, Anselin called the Doctor Merlin as if he'd been in the Arthurian England dimension and plotted with the knights against Morgaine. I always wanted to see that story, which I assumed was going to be in the future of Doctor Who, but was never made. I'm sure there are plenty of other episodes and books where the Doctor's future is hinted at and then it is never mentioned again. Due to different writers and generally no overarching story, these things weren't often resolved. Which ones would you like to see tied up in New Doctor Who? Well, I tried pretty hard to think of some other ones from classic Doctor Who, and we, we sort of we think there might be one, but those are the sort of the two big ones, I well, guess. There, I mean, there was also that side thing about that often in the 60s people were kept trying to create the next Daleks. Yes. Um, yes. So the mechanoids were the ones. Then there was the, the Chumblies. Was it an attempt oh, to actually yeah. make the Chumblies into something? Um, there was... And the Quarks. The Quarks. That's the one that obviously got. So, yeah, they, they kept bringing the Vord back in the comics. Yeah, there was this big belief in the 60s that, you know, well, this will be our next breakthrough monster, and of course that never happened. The example ones, though, I, I think the Valiard's an interesting one because we kind of know the Valiard's story, so the only thing that's missing is how he gets created. Well, you can't really do anything with that, though, can you, with the Valiard? No, I don't think you'd do a story about it. I think uh, the, the most I, I... I mean, I have to say for the, these two examples, and in fact for most of them, I kind of would like it if they don't do, it, do them mm-hmm. because I like there to be some mystery. And I think that's what, you know, the new series tried to reintroduce with the destruction of Gallifrey, and now they've brought it back. I have to say, I actually had a problem with the whole time war thing in the special because, it, yeah. it, it, you know, saying there is a time war and nodding to it is interesting and huge and, and epic. Yeah. Showing you a bit of it is actually a bit dull. And particularly mm. when they, and for me, like that was the, my biggest disappointment with, that, with the special was that they showed us this time war and it wasn't a time war, it was a space war. It was a bunch of time lords in stormtrooper armour shooting at Daleks with laser guns. I'm like, that is the least interesting interpretation of time war that I think you could possibly come up with. It looks more like starship troopers. And, uh, you know, and that's, it's okay if it was a space war, but it's, it's time war. It's supposed to be more interesting. And I think some of that stuff is better if you don't see it. Like, I certainly don't want to see them do the Merlin storyline. I think that's better as a total mystery. Like, who knows when or where or even if that actually happens mm-hmm. or whether 
there is another Doctor who is Merlin in this other dimension. It's funny, so there's, there's not really much... I think it's almost like if if there is anything left hanging, it's usually because it wasn't worth exploring further. Or it's just more interesting just, as yeah. a mystery. I mean, The Doctor's Daughter was one where apparently Moffat suggested to Russell T. Davies to, to not have Jenny die at the end of the story, but to keep her alive, which suggested he wanted to use her for something. And then but, she's never come back. And is that something we want to see her back? I did read something that that's, it could, could have been interpreted as what Moffat really said was to just kill her off is the most obvious way to end the show. <laughs> and and so what he was really he saying was is, having wouldn't go, it be more interesting if right. she lived? You just, just because He was just having a go at Rusty's hackneyed maybe, writing. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. But, you know, she's out there supposedly having adventures and it's not clear how Time Lordy or Which weirdly is the opposite to, is. to what annoyed me in... Um, uh, the Girl Who Waited, which I love. It's a great story. I so wanted them to let the older Amy live as yeah, well. Yeah, and just, yeah. she'd go off the hills somewhere living her life and just going, no, it's it's a weird juxtaposition, but, you know, it's a weird, um, but there are now these two Amys just living It, it also means lives. for like the 70th special or, or 80th special or whatever, you bring back um, Karen Dillon as, as that old Amy. <laughs> the old yeah. Amy. That, that would be a great. That would be great. That's a thread I wouldn't like them to have left, which they didn't. Mm. I think with the Valiard thing though, to get back to that, I, I don't, yeah, I wouldn't want to see them do any story with the Valiard. But you, if they did something that was just subtle that people who didn't know who the Valiard was wouldn't get. But like, if there's like a shadow following the Doctor who then like well, the, buggers off into is the, the idea, distance when he I'm regenerates. I'm remember. He's between the 12th and 13th regeneration. That's what he says. So, so I always figured, and a lot of fan writing on the subject, um, some of which I did write myself, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's obviously a lot of fan stories whenever there's something like this that's unresolved. And... Um, a lot of people imagine the Valiant must be something like the Watcher. So the, the mm-hmm. Watcher is this figure who turns up when Tom Baker is about to die and watches over him to make sure that yeah. his transition works. And we also sort of saw a version of that. Is it Campo in yeah. Planet of the Spiders? That's what kind of a, yeah. And he turns up, like, and he's like, he's like a premonition of what this other Time Lord's regeneration is going to be. Mm-hmm. And then the Watcher is just sort of a helpful figure who watches. But he's creepy because he's you know, all weird and odd-looking and white crinkly face and then uh, and then he merges with Tom Baker to turn into mm. Peter Davison and so it's almost like uh, the fan imagining of what the Valiar would be like is that the Valiar is a sort of similar psychopomp kind of weird part of the Doctor's psyche that can take on physical form and when he regenerates manages to escape and get out mm-hmm. rather than the other way around and I think that's an interesting idea but I think you almost I don't know what you do with it like we know what the the end result is and prequels are never that interesting I mean Actually, ask anybody who's watched Monsters they, University but they do do that thing at the end don't they they do that whole James Bond will return thing with him I just remember that he does yeah, the whole yeah because oh, oh, he's wearing the key and yeah. stuff and you're like oh no but, but if he comes back like, how is he different to the master for instance yeah. you know, he's just yeah. another villain really he wasn't I mean it, he was he's a, he's a classic case of an interesting idea that, is, that was kind of not done anything interesting with mm. you know for what it's worth but yeah so, I, know. Oh. I was just going to say, a, a little bit of what I've been hearing and reading is, um, you know, the, the notion that Capaldi might only be a short-term doctor. Mm. So is there space beyond his term for these sorts of things to make a reappearance or to be resolved? Or I, You know, I don't, I, I really don't, I, I find that when I think about it more and more, I really don't want them to do it. I want, I want them to leave the mysteries as mysteries. Because mm. like, there's other little things that you could go back and explain, but most of the things that are unexplained clearly happen in the Doctor's past. The Do- imagination is far greater for fans who oh, absolutely. love all of this. Yeah, yeah. If you, yeah. I always think that's the same too with, with terror and with violence. With all the stuff, mm. if you just hint 
and let people have to fill in. Actually, um, human... Uh, I want to say human nature, but I'm more because they've all got similar titles. Which is the one about the people sharing the flat, the ghost, the vampire, and the... Oh, uh, being human. Being human, oh, right. sorry. Being human, which is a great show. There's a reference in the first series to when you die, there being a corridor with the people with the sticks and rope. Oh, yeah, that's right. And it's like, did you tell her, did, yeah, someone's like, did you tell her about the, the corridor and the sticks and the rope? No, no, I thought she could find that out herself. And that's all you ever get told. And it is terrifying, a, a vision of the afterlife being a corridor and people with sticks and rope, and you're not told any more than that. And I think Actually, that kind of sounds like birth, when you think about it. I thought you were going to say this is like a Sunday, Sunday night it. for you. Yeah. <laughs> Party at my house. Um, but a couple of seasons later, they actually did, I think they, they expanded more on the idea, and it immediately became a lot less impressive. Like, it just, it just yeah. the minute you, and I think Doctor Who in particular, is a show of diminishing returns when it comes to a lot of a lot of things yeah. which are amazing the first time often Angels. <coughs> get, get, well, that seems the obvious one. Yeah, get mm. kind of worse as they go on. And you're going, no, that was brilliant, but mm. maybe yeah. it was brilliant once. You know, this comes back to the question of when, you know, in, in our November episode, when we were asked, what, what do you want to see in the future of Doctor Who? And I, and I still, I want to see them do things that I just don't know what they're going to be. And going mm. back and revisiting old things means that it's familiar. I mean, even, I mean, it's a lot of effort to take an old idea and reinvent it well. And I think there's room to do that with old monsters, but whether you want to do that with old plot well, threads... Well, it's like that thing David just mentioned, the comics. There's that, that comic in which the, the, the Vord turned out to be the Cybermen or something. Oh, and yeah, it's, written it's by the, Alan Moore, or, I and think. it's the worst ever concept, because it's oh. just the whole thing about it. It's just fan wank. There is no yeah. particular, yeah. you know... Al- Alan Moore apparently hadn't seen Doctor Who since William Hartnell. <laughs> That's why he brought back the Vord. <laughs> so he just that put the Vord sense. into everything. Yeah. yeah. I remember these being the biggest villains the show ever had. <laughs> I'm amazed. I'm amazed he didn't make the doctor like do magic and like teach us how to do it at home. That seems to be his bag these days. Um, I, I think there's some stuff though that I mean, I loved. One of the th- reasons why I love the Sylvester McCoy era so much is that there's all this stuff they hint at, and I think I probably wouldn't have loved it so much if they'd made that next season where they'd kind of. Mm. tied it all up actually one thing I love I absolutely love near future stuff like things that's sort of 10 years in the future mm. and this is one of the things about and I, and let's not go into the unit dating controversy no. oh, oh so that's close to bell oh, um, yeah. go quicker but um, I really love the fact that, that the people making the show at the time were very clear they knew they were, that it was meant to be set a little bit in the future so they did things like they added TV channels that didn't exist there was yeah. a female prime minister before there was one the, the, a lot of the, the, the telecommunications devices they're working there's a Martian um, space program going on and I just loved all that that it looked just like everyday contemporary life but would occasionally throw these things in oh, I'd love just to do that you, again in the same way that you know I've been watching Fringe but the parallel universe Fringe is so much more interesting than the real universe you go no no just stay in that just just show the show in that world because it's like our world but with weird little things for you to discover in the background and that's so much more interesting yeah that's not really connected to the question I just wanted to share no but that's cool oh cliffhanger all right, I think we should return to another question from Andrew Waddington. Oh, Andrew Yay. Waddington gave us so much money. Andrew is very generous, and we are happy to discuss the topics that he suggested because they're awesome. So, finally, from Andrew, we have Is the Doctor the most altruistic person in the universe? Sure, Billy Hartnell deliberately broke the TARDIS in the Daleks so he could have a look at the city, but he's learned a lot since then. Time and time again, he's put himself in the way of danger to help those in need. Maybe his real name is Selfless. Discuss. 
I want to disagree completely with this point. Wow. I love you, Andrew, and everything you stand for, but I disagree completely with it. What? Are you not going to disagree with this? Uh, not entirely, but you, you're going to completely disagree. Well, <laughs> I just thought it made a more interesting podcast. No, I just... Because um, I, I think the Doctor is a selfish asshole, really. If wow. you, well, if you want to take that view, because this is the thing, and there, there are two ways of looking at this. So if we're saying he's altruistic, one is that an awful lot of people die because he shows up. And not fact, all the time. Not all the time, but there are stories in which he is the reason That's people true. get killed. Yeah. Um, I mean, the most obvious example is uh, human remains. Human nature. Hu- no, and that one as well. The two most obvious examples. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm having. I'm talking to my mother today. I'm just going to get all the title. I'm going to deliberately well, you just, from now just on. keep picking all the ones that are human. I know. Like. I'm just human obsessed. Now, from that, now that's on, all of them, though. You've, gonna, you've exhausted them. I'm going to get all titles wrong from now on. In Paul Cornell's The First World War is a Fun Place to Be, there's um, the whole thing that's pointed out that it's, it, there are people only dying because he's brought the enemy there because he's the thing they want. And yes. he's become a target that goes on. The other thing, too, the, the flip side of that is you start going, so what about the times he doesn't show up? Mm. You know, mm. um, which Torchwood has touched upon. This whole kind of like, well, how come we can rely on you sometimes? And then he tells off the Prime Minister for wanting to protect herself with the, the Genevieve um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. space program thing. But um, going, oh, no, 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 I'm here to help you. It's like, well, you know, that's yeah, that's kind of creepy on a whole bunch of levels. This is why I liked it better when he was just a, he's just having adventures. And it, it just happened that he would come back to Earth sometimes. Whereas now there's this idea that that's his job. Because I actually wanted to mention, too, um, when Mike was talking about the Unbound stories, the Christmas special, and we talked about the one which has the Brigadier in it. Mm. And what we didn't mention in that is that it's because the Doctor turns up in Hong Kong... In 1997. ...at at the the handover, um, because he hasn't been around in the 70s or possibly 80s when all those unit stories happen, the Brigadier has had to do the best he can with what he's done which means yeah. a large section of America is irradiated yeah there's all these holes in it yeah, yeah. Where they've like sent someone back in time with a nuclear bomb to blow up the Silurians well it's also the suggestion that the Brigadier has basically just bombed everything yeah, yeah. And, and, and pretty much while he has saved the world he's seen as this crazy crazy man because no, no one believes him of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's just bombed so much stuff and made so much of the world uninhabitable that he's seen as a kind of crazy villain and they force him into retirement yeah, yeah. and that's my uh, the thing about and it's like oh but if only the Doctor had been there. It's like, well, yeah, that's the thing. If the Doctor isn't there, I don't know. It just, it just makes me think if, if we have to rely on the Doctor to save us, yeah. then that doesn't... He, he does, though. I mean, I think this is why... This is one of the things about the new series that, that I do find problematic. Is that In the old series, he always was at least trying to act with everybody's best sort of um, interests at heart. Like, even in something like Remembrance of the Daleks, which you've already mentioned this episode, but... He turns up, he's got a plan, he's, he's sort of finishing off an old plan, but the plan is to stop the Daleks from getting complete control over time and space, which I think everyone can agree would be disastrous and probably lead to some kind of time war with the Time Lords or something. Yeah. I don't know. I'm Lucky. saying thumbs down. Yeah, that would never happen. So good thing he stopped that. But, um, and people die, but you get, it's not because he's planned for people to die. And this is something where in the new adventures it goes where he's, he's doing the number crunching and he's going like, well, it's okay if I let six people die because then, you know, six billion people will live. Uh, in Remembrance of the Likes, he's not doing any number crunching. He's like, I've got to make this plan work, but I'm not quite sure how it's going to work. And he's just trying to run interference and stop people from dying in the middle of it. Um, but it is true that, you know, the Daleks wouldn't come to Earth looking for the hand of Omega if he hadn't taken it there. Did you tell me that thing about the time war? Did we discuss that? Someone said that apparently the first two steps of the time war are in the show itself. Oh, yeah. No, well, um, Russell T. Davies refers to Genesis of the Daleks as mm-hmm. the first volley in the time war. 
Um, and then, so the Time Lords actually started against well, the Daleks. Well, and it's then... hard to know because we don't know what provoked the Time Lords to decide to send the Doctor to erase them from existence. And he right. doesn't do it anyway. So, yeah. you know, it's, you can all say it's the Doctor's fault. But even then, he's, he feels like he's doing the right thing. But he's also got a history, and this happens a lot during Tom Baker's era, of putting himself in harm's way and then other people sacrificing themselves to save him because he's so great and he's got to carry on. They never really put it that way in the old series, but they do in the new series my, quite explicitly. I think I mentioned that's my, my big problem with Blink, which is amazing. Blink is amazing. It's awesome. It's a, it's a truly brilliant piece of television. But there is that thing where he has to get um, the cop to get old enough to pass the message to Sally um, Sparrow so that they can go back and rescue him with the TARDIS, as opposed to him just spending 40 years to get there himself and going back and rescuing well, the but cop. But then, then Martha would presumably, you know, be... Well, go back and rescue Martha. I mean, there, there were yeah. ways that surely yeah. he could have used his whole time travel thing. Yeah, but could, they, could he look at that, that um, Billy Compton? Compton? I can't remember his name. Um, that well, it's already happened. The angels have already got him and brought him back. Well, he's a a means to sort of help prevent it from happening. But, to I don't know, other but people. I think, but I think he could have saved him, but at some expense to himself. It would take him time. It would take effort. Forty rather, years, yeah, forty years. Handful rather, of heartbeats to a time. But, but exactly, rather than him just going, oh, that's a bit of a hassle. I'll do it this but, way around and, and but, get out quicker. Thing is, if you have a time machine. Like, if you meet someone and they tell you they've got cancer, you know, you can go back in time and stop them smoking or something. You know, if somebody Ooh, says, you know, my father was died in a car accident, you know, as, as, mm. as happened with Rose, you know, he can go back and stop that. It's like everybody he meets, anything tragic that's ever happened to them, he can go back and prevent it. Well, Anyone who dies, he can go back and stop busy, it. Though. Well, this is why... But, but he's doing that anyway, already. I mean, he always says, oh, you can't change time, but that's all he's doing. No. Like, he's always just people who would have died yeah. if he wasn't there. No, I see, but I, the way that I see this is this is why it's a problem to bring time travel in as a plot element in Doctor Who, because it really wasn't. It hardly mm. ever was in the original series. Like, almost never. Is it means of travel? It, it, he would just go to different times yeah. and places, but he would, it wouldn't be about time travel. And that's and bringing that in is difficult. And it, they sort of get around it by saying, well, you can't change history. And the way I've read that has always been, if you know what happens, you can't change it. If you have no idea, then you can't be changing history. You're, you're actually part, part of, of history. history. Right. But then that makes it a fatalist show in which nothing you do will have uh, well, any Well, it's also... Of... Well, yes and no. I mean, I think you, if you don't know your own personal future, then it's not fatalistic because you don't know what the outcome is fixed to be. So you just try and make the outcome the best you can. And obviously, whatever, whether you succeed or fail, that becomes history. One of the books, apparently, uh, one of the, yeah, the the missing adventure type yeah. books, um, which is a Hartnell one, has this belief that every time they step outside the TARDIS, they are, in fact, changing history. Yeah. It's a scene where he talks to Barbara, saying, having to admit that, in fact, clearly anything we do is going to be changing history. And then, but I think also the suggestion in the book is meant to be that they actually often wipe out all the history they've been through. Like every single story basically will alter every future event after that wow. story. And that, and that explains a lot because like, it's like the, the future that you see in, say, Frontier in Space you know, is different to the future in, um, in another story where the Doctor goes into Because the it's a different future. Be- because because, he's, because of everything that's future, happened yeah. since that story. He's changed it, yeah. 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 And that's why yeah, people know things and sometimes and don't know things other times. And, and, and explains all the continuity errors. Yeah. I think, look, I think on a small scale level, to get back to the root of the question, obviously he does spend most of his time trying to watch out for other people. And I think, I think the thing that spoils that for me a bit in the new series is how much he makes a big deal of that. Mm-hmm. Like in the old series, he'd just get on with it. 
he just said, all right, now I've got to try and save the universe. I'm going to plug myself oh, into this thing. Um, and, and it might kill me, but, you know, it's for the best. Um, whereas now he'd be like, yeah, well, I'm the best, so don't mess with me. And other people will go, you can't die, Doctor. You're the special one. But part mm. of the thing is it worked in the old series because they just ignored the problem and they didn't draw attention to it. Right, and now it's and drawing you took it to story it. by story, and now they try and make it all really serious and, and make sense and but have also continuity. On a and level, then, though, I mean, how much how much responsibility should he have? Which I don't know. I mean, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's better when it's small. This is why I like it when it's small scale. The doctor turns up, he gets into a scrape, he tries to save the people. But then involved. should he be trying to find things to solve because he could? Or no, should I he think he should to... just be going on adventures and he just gets caught up in them. Okay, that's my preferred thing. Well, and then he is just yeah, being altruistic. Have an overarching goal? No. No, he's just having a good time, and then trying to do but, the right thing. But he for has people. to find Gallifrey. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Thanks for that, Dave. Yeah. Okay, so we're nearing the end, but for uh, Robin Bland, she would like us to talk about the gays and the who, specifically the question: Why did he become a straight? Again, I'll just point you to my essay. <laughs> in quiz, what essay is that, John? In Quizdick well, Time Lord. Actually, well, see, here's where I disagree, John, because I, I, after we did our sex episode, I've been thinking about this, because mm-hmm. I also don't like there to be a lot of, you know, sexuality with the Doctor. I think it's weird and, and it doesn't quite work because of who he is and what kind of story he's part of. But I think um, while he certainly hasn't been sexual in the past, he's not asexual. Like, he clearly... In the classic series, it's very rare that he does anything sexual. There's a little bit of flirting here and there, like the first Doctor flirts with Kamika and he's obviously into it and gets accidentally engaged. Um, and he enjoy- Patrick Troughton's Doctor clearly is enjoying being flirted with, if not flirting back with Astrid in Enemy of the World. I think he's, I think he's always been a straight. He's just been an... What's the, I don't know what the correct term See, for it would be. A non-acting straight. I don't like, know. he's not to, sexual, but he to is... To me, I, I, think, I think the Doctor has one of those... Um, Clear bumps where his genitals should be, like you get on shop like mannequins a yeah. or a Ken doll. Yeah, to me oh, that's look, that's. You, and there was New I Earth. I didn't think about it, John. Don't, no, no, don't, don't get me wrong. No, because New Earth brought it up. New Earth strictly uh, tells you out loud the Doctor has a penis, and it was yes. like I don't need to know that. I don't want to know that. That's just so away from what I want. It's from a this weird character. thing to do in a family slash children's show. Uh, yeah, well, so as having a joke about you know, getting head from a slab of concrete as yeah. well, and they they went there. Yeah, that's but, not cool. Um, but this is the thing to me, yeah, to me, he was just so asexual because, and again, I, I'll go with the essay, but it's, it's all to do with TV, how TV's made. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's not any choice. TV mm. at the time, originally, he was, both he was a father figure, but also sex was largely absent in these sort of family traumas. And that's what I grew up with. I really liked. I do find the character now is so relentlessly heterosexual that I kind yeah. of just find it a bit tedious. Oh, yeah, they shove it in your face all the time now. Um, but it's yeah. also that thing where. T- television now has to be about romance. I mean, we, t- we sort of talked about that because on that show, I remember Karen Pickering saying, but that's what all drama is. And I was thinking about that afterwards going, but it's funny because for me, and maybe this is, you know, me wandering into, into the autistic spectrum, but it's that thing of looking at, uh, hey, hey, it's World War II, let's all change our faces, the story by Stephen Moffat. Oh, you mean... Gas uh, Masters of Death. Oh. So in Gas Masters of Death by Stephen Moffat, you can look at that as being... A story entirely about, and I probably should give the real title. It's The Empty Child, The Doctor Dances. Thank you. Uh, That you can look at that as being a story, a mystery, a technical mystery, in which there is a child with a thing stuck in his face, uh, it's viral, it's weird, the doctor works out it's actually medical nanobots, which think they're fixing but aren't, has to find some genetic information, 
that the, the bots will recognize and they yeah. do and revert. And the thing is, to me, that's a, that's a satisfying story. That, yeah. to me, is a completely satisfying... That's like an episode of House. That's a completely satisfying <laughs> story yeah. to me. And I don't need any romance in it. But it's also got great emotional drama, even without a relationship in it, because of Nancy. And Nancy being, you know, the, the whole thing where... This is a spoiler for the end of that two-parter, if you've not seen it. But, you know, it was 2005, people. Get on board. And this is a Doctor <laughs> yeah. Who podcast. You know, Nancy turning out to be, you know, a single... A, a teenage single mother in World mm. War II. It's got a huge dramatic impact, and it serves the story. Like, it's a fantastic emotional resonance so that that story makes right. both but it doesn't need to be and emotional sense yeah but it doesn't have there, to be romance there's a lot of romance in that in that story and there to is. me i can lose all of it well, and then doesn't really there's a lot of flirting me. i don't know if it's really well, romance yeah so that's what i mean but there's there's and i hate it when people kind of go oh but there's jack and there's all these gay characters like, yeah, and they're all off on the sides they often get killed you know no yeah. gay couple i think still has survived to the end of a doctor who's story and i think regardless of who he would be having a relationship with i still think and this again this is hangover from our sex episode that the doctor is, is such a tremendous power and experience imbalance that it's just not cool. Like, it's borderline not cool for the kind of relationships well, he it's does cool have at all. with, yeah, with, with relationships and, whatever. and with Rose particularly. Like, and the ninth doctor is a bit weird with her and then they and then it seems like that it's it's all right they've become friends and then and then the tenth doctor and her is just cr- weird but back to the question though now people want that it's a really like you mentioned before the sherlock supernatural doctor who people yeah um but does female- it, it doesn't have to be part of the show though i think oh no 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 it, it, it does i think i think that's because uh, female viewers are the ones who choose what to watch that is yes it's you petra it's your fault no no, no that, that, that's that is what you know karen can disagree with me but that is what they found women viewers on whole seem to want more of that aspect to their shows right romance is a big part now of 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 every tv show pretty much yeah and so yes the doctor has to be a heterosexual lead now romantic so you, lead you say that though but there's no there's not a lot of romance in Sherlock. And Sherlock, like we just mentioned, Sherlock's one of the big three, right? The big three programs in the two lead characters in Sherlock are shipped endlessly. Yeah, they're shipped, but there's no they're they're brothers. They don't have a relationship in the show. They're not brothers. They're brothers. Are they? The two main characters in Supernatural are brothers. Oh, Supernatural! Sorry, I thought you said Sherlock. 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 In Sherlock, they're not brothers. No, no. In Supernatural, they're brothers because if they weren't, you assume they were a gay couple. Yeah, that's true. That's quite clear. They've had to. Okay. Well, if we're talking about Sherlock, John and Sherlock, you know, obviously, yes people ship them but they don't have an explicit romance I thought this romance. was a twist in Sherlock I never knew about before oh no that would know. be great it turned though, out they were brothers and I didn't know there's, that going. and you were going everyone knows that yeah <laughs> sorry I got confused there's more through. sexual tension between Holmes and Watson in Sherlock than there is between Holmes and Watson in Elementary which is interesting because <laughs> Elementary is the one which has them as a, yes. a male and female character yeah I see but I don't I don't know if I I can't agree with that like I watch Sherlock and I don't see like I see why people want there to be sexual tension yeah but maybe it's and maybe it's just but, me. But, and this, but there is jokes about it. You yeah, know? yeah, there's I jokes about it. For I think it's deliberate thing, and from know. the very first episode. I think it's deliberately there. Yeah, it is because there is that. I think, but I think it's. I almost think it's calculated. I almost made some sitting down. Yeah, going, no, it is. What's going to bring that audience in? Sure. Yeah, and I guess I. I'm one of those really dull, tedious people who, whenever people bring up like, oh, Bert and Ernie are a couple, or Sherlock and John Watson are a couple, I'm like, look, don't mm. retrofit 
a couple onto a friendship. Like, no, make a no, story about this, a, a and this, heterosexual But this is what I've said to me about everything couple. becomes about love rather than just being friends, which is why I liked originally, you know, the Doctor and, and the companions were mates. They were mates hanging out. And they out. did love each other and they were best friends. And that Donna series, which everyone agrees, the two yes. of them were brilliant together yeah, because fantastic. they did that. Or even then they had to keep stressing they weren't. But I would say even with Sherlock, I think it's just a horrifically calculated attempt to deliberately put that in knowing that it's going to work for that audience, even though they know they're not a couple. I- for me, and I, I was literally watching this episode last night, when uh, after the regeneration of um, Eccleston into Tennant, and Tennant's still re- recovering or regenerating, and Billy is, um, sorry, Billy, Rose is saying to her mum, he's left me, mum, he's left me, and it's a beautiful performance, but it was very, very much about a young girl kind of mourning, you know, the loss of her first boyfriend. It felt so teenage and and love story that um and then the next episode they're they're the best of mates as though there's been no change at all. So I think, you know, the first season of the new series it, it, you could read it as just mates, but then that episode where Tennant is, oh, look how pretty he is, we've got to make this about love and sex. Yeah. And then it became a romantic. But I certainly don't think, I think he's definitely a heterosexual romantic character yeah. now in a way that will never go back to what he was before. Yeah. Uh, well, I, well, you say that, but I mean, who knows what will happen now when Capaldi comes in. And they've already sort of resisted it a bit because Matt Smith, well, there's Matt Smith and is the 11th Doctor and River Song. And that's over now. But that never felt now. romantic to me. No. It, it just really felt weird. Didn't. It did feel weird. It felt like... It always like, felt weird. It's yeah. like all the romance happened off screen somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I felt like... she just turned up, like, knowing that it, it was But the I think case. the problem with that was they established during the Russell T. Day period, D- Davies period where it was all about romance. They established they were a couple. And then it was almost like I got the feeling that Moffat wanted to go away from that but still had to be addressing that so you end up with that weird thing where it's being addressed but not being addressed at the same time I think we, it's like it's like I mean you want to talk about unresolved foreshadowings it's like all the bit where they have some kind of happy functional relationship is an unresolved foreshadowing and, we've and never I'm seen it stretching the weird thing with me because people always miss this is that when they go oh there's great gay characters in the show now I don't necessarily want them to be gay characters you know, and I don't want them to be straight characters at all I think this is the, the problem a lot of people because I, when I watch the show, I don't assume... Oh, oh, fit it in, John, fit oh, it in. Oh, oh, um, so my whole thing is, I'm watching the show, I'm not thinking, oh, there are gay characters now, hooray, because before there are only straight characters. If I'm watching the original series, I'm assuming that they're all neutral characters. Or even maybe they're all gay characters until I'm told they're not. And that thing of having to be told a character is gay, I don't want, I just want, I just want no kissing at all. Just no kissing, that's it. Just take all the kissing out. No, well, see, I, just, more, just shake the show well, until all the kissing falls on the floor. See, I, and then get a broom, and you sweep up the kissing, and you put the kissing in the bin, and then you put the bin out on the correct night. Maybe they recycle. Can you recycle kissing? I don't know if you can. And then the, 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 I hope the, the big so, truck comes, I'll not have any ever puts again. the kissing in the back of the truck, and I don't know where the kissing truck goes after that, actually. I don't know where it goes either, John, but I think it's okay to have kissing in Doctor Who, as long as it's not the Doctor doing it. That is my, that's my word on it. And yeah. as long as I don't screw it up like they have the same responsibility to do relationships well as any other TV show and when they screw it up like they screwed up Amy and Rory it's horrendous and when they force it in on the Doctor's character who I think is some possibly some kind of sexual being I don't think that's as interesting as he's an alien from another world and let's explore the sorry Ben I think see if I hadn't used up all your time with that kissing truck I should have kept going. <laughs> awesome kissing truck. Kissing when truck. you're down on your luck and oh. you don't give up, you need the kissing truck. Stop that. Awesome kissing <laughs> truck. That. Okay. So. We're going to, we had to bleep that out, that word. That that says, I didn't say a word. There's nothing act. to bleep. <laughs> <laughs> An improvised song by Petra. 
Oh, Excellent. True, My true. work here is done. Oh, wait. No, it's not. I have another topic from Alex Mason, who sent us a short story to set up the topic. In grade two, in the library of my primary school in Toowoomba, that's in Queensland for our overseas listeners, I plucked from the reference section a hardback copy of an odd-looking Doctor Who story. It had a blue cover with a misty image of the first six doctors standing together in the distance with a feminine hand holding aloft a crystal key in the foreground. What my small brain thought must be the coolest and largest novelisation that the librarian had ever hidden from its proper home in the fiction section turned out to be a copy of Doctor Who, The Key to Time, a year-by-year record, a 21st anniversary special, an historical treasure trove of information about the show and my very first encounter with the concept of Doctor Who as a production. From its pages and at a... Sadly tender age, I became aware of BBC policy, union strikes, mysterious cancelled episodes, lost tapes, the names of producers, writers, script editors, and how and why the actors who had played the Doctor came and went. It awakened an interest in the show that converted me from watcher to Whovian. It introduced me to the idea that times change and fans come and go. It made me aware that longevity of the show had, at various times, been under threat for reason of mundane practicality like ratings, budgets and competition with newer shows. Today, in its 50th year, the show seems bulletproof, but this cannot be the case. If it's true that somewhere in this universe is a time and place in which the tea is getting cold, then surely there is also a time and place when someone will need to make a difficult decision and the show will be cancelled again. What are the panel's views on an ending of new Doctor Who? When might this be? How would this be handled? Could it ever be left open-ended for a second reboot? Will there be a time when another small child finds an old book or webpage or podcast and begin to think, what happened to that show that my parents loved? Is Doctor Who as timeless as we would all, perhaps ironically, hope it to be? Panel... Let's discuss. I'm going to go with the very beginning bit first, though. So the key to time, I'm guessing three of the four people at this table may have owned that book. I do own it. I, I recently bought a, a second-hand copy. Yeah. 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 Mine's probably back back in Perth in my, my parents' back shed with but all my Target novels. I, yeah. I remember it being pretty good, actually. And the other thing I thought was interesting was you mentioned the 21st anniversary yes. special, showing how big that show was. They did, a lot, like it was, it was, they did a lot of 21st anniversary stuff, but I think that I, is... I, I think the 20th special by Peter Haining book um, was popular, so they brought another one out no, next year. No, but the show was big enough. That's what I mean. The 20th yeah. anniversary, well, the show was popular and big enough, and merch was, was happening so much that there was room for a 21st celebration. Is that when celebration. it came of age? Well, also that was 1985, and so that was, you know, that really sort of troubled period of the show. No, 84. No, you're right, 84. Yeah, and that was when Colin Baker came in, and I think they were really trying to push Colin Baker. And no, no, actually, I think, I think the show had actually been pretty popular during the Davison era, so generally, and then the merchandise was a kind of new big thing they were pushing for, so there was That's a lot true. of that coming out. But, but, the, the, um, no, but long lead had just happened, and half a million people or yeah. something had shown oh, up yeah. to that. And also what know. I mentioned was that, from the description of the book, that these books were so tech detail in a way that you wouldn't get now. No one would talk about union problems and, and oh, well, things the, in, the in thing, books now. The key to time is, is basically just here's all of the stuff that was reported about Doctor Who in the media. Media mm. through this whole era, which is interesting. But I think um, the push to have 21st century, sorry, 21st anniversary memorabilia, I think is part of the answer to the question about, you know, could it be cancelled again? Because in those days, towards the end of its run, 
uh, or at least in that period, they were trying to do things to make the show popular and to capitalise on its popularity. And then by the end of the sort of 80s, when you get into the Sylvester McCoy era, um, the, you know, the, the sort of the Andrew Cartmell era, he's trying to do something with the show. He's trying to tell an interesting story. He's trying to make it mysterious and make it into something that he thinks is worthy. He's not doing it because he wants everyone to love it. He's mm-hmm. doing it because he thinks that's the best show that it can be. And I think, and which is partly why the ratings fell off because it, you know, not everybody was looking for that in the show. But that, um, that's at the very end, though. I think what's interesting to note with that is that the show goes from being massively popular in the 20th and 21st, you know, years, the, the, mm. the Davis News, to being, you know, cancellable like four years, five years later. Well, like it's year a later, very really. short. Well, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, the highest. It, does, it falls from grace very, very quickly. And the thing is, I think that could easily happen again. I think. I think the show could easily go off air now, but I think it'll actually happen in a slightly different way. And I could see it happening, you know, next year. I mean, this is the weird thing. I, if the BBC at any point now said the show's so popular we're taking it off air, I would not be at all surprised. Because you know how the big thing in England is that if a show's massively popular, it starts making Christmas specials and nothing else. That, that's, you know, if you're big enough, you just stop making shows and you make Christmas specials. But that's partly, I mean, when you look at sitcoms and things like that from the BBC... Partly the reason they stop when they get massive is because there's this tremendous pressure to keep them going. And most sitcoms in particular, and I use that as an example specifically, uh, are only written by one or two people. That's why the seasons are so short for sitcoms in the UK. And even telefantasy shows tend to be short of seasons in the UK because you have a smaller team of writers. Yeah. So, you, you know, but but you even have... now, I would not be surprised. If, if they announced the Inacapaldi, it's going off air for a few years... Yeah. Weirdly, it wouldn't surprise me because I think it's now seen as an incredibly valuable commodity. Mm. I don't think it'll ever go away in the same way. I mean, my feeling is, you know, surely someone could stuff it up hugely, I guess. But my feeling is that they know how much money it can make them now. Because when, when Doctor Who was being made back then, money made for sales went into a general production pool and the BBC were quite highbrow about not wanting to be involved with the messiness of the money. Now I think the BBC is much more, hey, money! I think well, like, they the need whole the culture, money now. But the whole culture's changed so much now that I think they, they're really, they know the value of everything and that's connected in the way it never used to be. So I think they know Doctor Who's a massive brand that makes a lot of money and they know it can always work in some way. But it wouldn't surprise me if they took it off air every so often to revitalise it. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, you can still monetize it without it being on air. There's yes, so absolutely. much yeah. paraphernalia, books, audio. There's so much well, they can go on without it being televisual. It's kind of happened already. You had that year when um, they only did the David Tennant specials, which was kind of you know, just minimizing Doctor Who for a year. Now, although we've just had this huge... 50th anniversary thing it's not coming back till probably August at least yeah which is later than most years and the other thing too back in the day one of the reasons it got cancelled was that because um, it it took an enormous amount of resources at the BBC to make it now it takes a lot of money but it does still take up a it's obviously harder to make a series of Doctor Who than it is to make Strictly Come Dancing or whatever it's called mm. yeah. so, which is true of sci-fi and fantasy in general it's yeah. true of everything although more so Reality Doctor TV. Who well drama TV. generally yeah so there is that thing like you were saying that, that you know they might move to four specials a year for a few years they might do like mm. I, I, it's, mm. it's quite easy and, to and see that reasons. won't have much impact on the, the merchandising and stuff yeah as long they as might do another spin-off I could see that happening yeah. they could mm. do a unit spin-off now for example. Which will be cheaper because it'll be set in and they'll have the same, and, and they'll have yeah. the same set every month, yeah. every week. And, mm. yeah. well, and that's the thing. So weirdly enough, yes, I can see it going off air quite easily, but not disappearing through... Because, yeah, the BBC hated it. 
in the eighties. You know, Michael Gray. Well, and Michael people Gray came in. It. Well, there was, but there was distinctly a, a culture. No one within the BBC cared enough about it. Yeah. It, it was never prestigious in the way it is now. Yeah. yeah. Now it's a, now it really is the jewel in the crown thing. You get you know the big name actors in it. You've got uh, it's got a level of of support now. And yet, even now, like, they're only making, really, they're making half-length seasons and then packaging them together as a whole season. Mm. You know, it's like what happened to Battlestar Galactica at the end. You know, they've got a, well, we're going to make half a season now, we'll make half a season later, but half a season of Doctor Who is six or seven episodes. I mean, that's the same thing AMC's been doing with uh, Breaking, Breaking Bad, Bad and with Mad Men. That both last seasons were split into two short seasons because AMC wanted to, like you were saying, AMC wanted to keep it on air and have the content there, and fewer episodes still counts. Like, yeah, mm. like, you know, for them, two years of seven episodes is as good as a year of, well, it's twice as good as a year of 13 episodes because mm. they can still sell things off the back of that. This is off topic, but um, I was watching the trailer for a new episode, a new season of Community, and I loved the fact that they said from, you know, the, the show. <laughs> the producer runner, of seasons one, one, two, three. and three. <laughs> <laughs> and then comes the season, season five, five, and no mention of season. <laughs> Season four, so maybe there is like, you know, a wave that Doctor Who will, you know, if it does get stuffed up, that they just completely I, unacknowledge it and then come I back bigger the, and better. The big difference between Doctor Who and other TV shows is that you will never run out of Doctor Who stories because any story can be a Doctor Who story. Yeah, I mean that's right in the charter of when they um, set it up. You, you, if it's taken off, it would be for you know TV production kind of things like yes. we've been talking yeah, about. Not, not through mm. a, a, un, un, yeah. unlike you know Faulty Towers, only ever made. 12 yeah. episodes because to make more would would, would, it would, would stop being exploded funny. John yeah. Cleese's brain I yeah. Think. Yeah. Yeah. and also I was going to say in the 80s when, when it was disliked within the thing is the thing is if they'd gone we love this you know this show and, and we don't think it's working they would have replaced the producer yeah, yeah at that point John Edgerton mm. wanted to get off it and they wouldn't let him yeah so that's the thing is like yeah, you know, they can just Wait. choose it, and they would revamp it and whatever. Whereas now, yeah, but clearly they didn't care enough about the show; they didn't care if it survived or not. Whereas now they go, "Oh no, let's let's try a new direction for next year." If and make Moffat a big thing got of it. tired, and well, is there anyone who would want to stick up the hand to be showrunner after uh, Moffat? Absolutely, do you reckon? absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah it's there's a bit of a stigma attached. No, no, to anything? no. I, I think no. this is the kind of show that, even knowing what a nightmare it would be. Mm-hmm. You'd still do it. There's like, so many yeah. people who are massive fans. Like, there's been some rumours of that Neil Gaiman might be yeah. like tempted to do it. But then a lot of fans seem to not necessarily like that idea. So could that contribute to oh, no, I, really? The I don't know any fans no. who don't like the idea no. of Neil oh, Gaiman doing it. Oh, I, I guess I, yeah. I, I, I think he'd be terrible as really? a showrunner. I think he'd okay. be really bad. He, he doesn't. He'd be he different. doesn't. He doesn't have the experience in television. They, they would never give it to him. Tom McRae is yeah. my pick. Who um, yeah, wrote the girl who waited and the original summer one? He oh, did, give him the job. He then. did. Uh, he did the th- a threesome. I think was the sitcom that he was showrunner on, which I quite liked. I think, yeah. and he's got a lot of stage experience. I, well, he'd be guys, my pick. You know, or someone like the people who run ran um, or did Being Human or Misfits or something like. Well, he, that would uh, to- be Toby Whithouse, who was Being Human, he's probably the most obvious. I would think yeah. choice for it. Mm. Yeah, um, or get a woman in. Crazy thought. I well, know. this is my problem. If if we could go outside America, Jane Espenson would be. Oh, hang on. Uh, uh, Jane no, Espenson no, continue would be, that thought, John. Jane Espenson would be at the absolute best show at the moment. I think to get in. Yeah, but she she's American, so I don't. But she's done Torchwood, oh, so I she's got. They, they could have her. They could have an American behind the scenes. I think you would probably never get an American on the show playing Doctor. But no, you could have an American. I think running she would show. do yeah. a phenomenal she job. Would, but here's a quick question to end off: If they did stop it and then bring it back, would it be rebooted or would they just go on? It would be rebooted in the same way that that the 2005 was a reboot. 
and that right. it wouldn't be. But the be, story would continue. I think on it would be a continuation. And, and the feel but, and, and tone would change. But you'd be stepping on again. You'd say, "Here's a guy. Ooh. He travels in this thing. Oh, what's that? That's a Dalek." I think you'd, you'd do exactly the same way mm, Russell yeah. did. That you'd, you'd introduce everything slowly again. I think that was he, he reinvented slightly. Superbly, he kind of knew that's the best way of doing it. Yeah, I think, and I think that's right. I think that is the best way of doing it. And I and I don't think because it's been done once now, where they brought it back from basically being dead and still made it a continuation. Yes. You know, I think that that's how they back. do it in the future. They wouldn't yeah. reboot so, it from scratch. I know we've heard the bells, but I really feel that we, you know, timey wimey and all that. We, I think we need to address one more thing um, in Alex's question, and that is uh, about whether a small child finds an old book and wonders whether they're, um, what happened to the show that his parents loved. I don't think so, because I don't think the show's ever going to go away in that same way again. I think the show's always going to be around in some form for that kid to love. Although, interestingly, I think that has already happened with some of New Who. I think it's happened to Christopher Eccleston. I think some people have just forgotten him and that whole first year of it. But they it just is, don't go back and watch it when they start watching it. But now. it's always going to be there to be it's rediscovered. It's still more accessible now than it was when it went off air in the eighties oh, yes. because yes. of the internet, because of all of the extra paraphernalia that's around. I, I think Doctor Who in the eighties was already dated. Whereas um, if it went off now, it doesn't feel like a dated show. So they could keep repeating it for twenty years or ten years or until it feel, felt dated. Wow. Yeah. It's a show that can succeed without even a show behind it. Yeah. I think there's something yeah. in that for all of us, <laughs> don't you? Well, that's, that's it. That's all six topics now. We've managed to talk you about You requested and we spoke it. Yeah. We supplied. Maybe we should do this again sometime. Well, I, I do like the coffee. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, we'll at least come back for the coffee, even yeah, if yeah. we don't come back for the podcast. But this is, it. This is the last thing we'll record for this year of Doctor Who. My eyes are a little bit moist at that idea. It's, I, 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 look, I, I, I yeah, try not to be too mushy about it. I thought it was good. No, I thought um, I thought Spinning Chaps worked remarkably well and we met amazing people. I we just did. Love all the people we, we got to meet. It was my favourite thing and... that my favourite decision we made about the show was bringing guests on because we did get to yeah, talk to so many amazing people and, but I mean, and even, even beyond the guests who were all so phenomenal, just the people who came to the shows yeah. who we got to meet and talk to, who left messages and yeah. interacted with us and you know it's just great and people around the world and we just yeah I mean um, people like Alan who makes the Tardises and Edward who makes Daleks and just all these amazing people we got to meet along yeah. the way yeah it's been it's been a fun ride it's uh, it's sad that it's it's sad in some ways that it's over but it's also nice to to make a thing that has a finite mm. ending you know like in a way that Doctor Who doesn't because this isn't this isn't totally the end for us as a group working together um, as Splendid Chaps. We've got a project for 2014, which we announced in the Christmas special. It's called Night Terrace. Ooh. And there's even a website. Well, it, it should be by the time you see this, yes. Yeah, well, there is one, isn't there? It's well, there. The, the, there's a to, landing page. The there's a dona- domain name which has been registered. We've registered yes. a domain name. We also have a it's Twitter account. Hey. Oh, that's exciting. So it's practically finished. So yeah, it's <laughs> practically night, done. Night Terrace. Remember, there are two T's in the middle there. Night Terrace. Because uh, it's all one word. But, yes. Yes, but the T appears twice. Yes. Um, and it's uh, yes, it's going to be a drama. I want no drama. It's going to be scripted, a sci-fi scripted comedy. comedy. Yeah, yes. scripted comedy with with plots and stories and jokes and stuff. Yeah, and we, I mean, you know, it's in the early outline stage at the moment. We've got yes. a pretty good idea of what it's going to be like. It's going to be, uh, so it's like, be like a radio play, but you know, for a podcasting downloadable kind of on the interwebs. On the interwebs, and it's going to be brilliant. I believe audio is the te- is the usual term for such a thing. Audio it's comedy. Not very, it's not no. a very good term, but it'll no. have to do for listening to. 
Yeah. Yeah. It'll be like it'll be like Big Finish, only uh, original stuff and funny. <laughs> so that, when I say original, that I mean like an original concept. Big finish, which no, no, no. What you mean. I mean it's an original like, concept, <laughs> and it's a comedy. That's yeah, yeah, what I mean. You, you made it sound like yeah, Wait, big finish was stale and bad. Let me go again. It's like big a big awesome. Like I should put big, out. Yeah, they are. are great. I love them. They're they're part of our inspiration to do this. But it's it should be that. I, what I mean is, it, it'll be like a, a big finish audio adventure series, but it'll it's a completely um, new original, idea, original concept, original concept um, and it is a comedy, not a drama. Yes. So, and there's a, there's another, there's actually a new sci-fi, an original sci-fi drama series coming out, which is not from Big Finish, but it's got some of the Big Finish people in it, oh, called cool. Infinity, I think, or something yeah. like that. So, so yeah, that's there's there's a bit of it going about, but ours, I think, is the only comedy that I know of, certainly the only sci-fi comedy. So it's going to be fun. And you, Petro, what have you? You're, you're Doctor Who. Have you? What have you? What have you learned? Because you you came in as a bit of a newbie. I am. A, I've, I still think I'm a bit of a newbie by comparison. I mean, I am trying to work on a little project myself for the moment, which is uh, applying all the things that I've learned about all of the doctors, and I still can't remember everything. Like January, February, March, those shows seem so far away because we've had such a jam-packed year, and I've loved every second of it. If only there was some way you could go back and listen to them again. You know, Ben, I think there's something in that. I had a moment the other day where I thought I was a bad fan because I can never remember which side the sucker goes on on the Dalek and which uh. is that. And then I thought the simple fact I was worrying about that showed that I'm, I'm you're a good I'm fan. a good fan. There's <laughs> no wrong way to be a fan, well, yeah, John. But, you know, I, that thing of everyone thinks they don't know enough. I think the fact that I can recognise that Daleks don't have big left toes, I'm winning at life. <laughs> you're already ahead of the Go-Go's uh-huh. there. Yeah. yeah. That's true. I get ahead of someone who released a commercial song. <laughs> that's already it, isn't it? That's, that's pretty much it. Oh, well, should you read the outro and we'll just, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's... It, you know, Should we you, say goodbye? This isn't the last yeah. thing that people will hear from us, but it's certainly the last thing we're recording. So... It's the last thing that will have our, the, your usual sign-off. That's yeah, true. it's true. So. It's, it's like when they recorded Ghostlight last, but then Survival aired last. It's just like that. It's just like that. <laughs> <laughs> and until next we meet. Thank, Thank you. you. It's, it's good. good. Keep, Keep warm. warm. You have been listening to Splendid Chaps by request. Yes, you have. We'd like to thank all of you Splendid Chaps listening at home. Thank you. Your hosts were John Richards, Petra Elliott, David Ashton, and me. The audio engineering and theme tune were created by the technical wizardry of David Ashton from Sample and Hold Studios. He's pretty awesome. He's A big thanks to all our possible supporters for making this extra episode happen. No, they are awesome. Especially Andrew Waddington, Stephen Hahn, Lee McKenzie, and Alex Mason. Yeah. You can... Thanks for our other supporters, plus more about us at SplendidChaps.com and find us at Splendid Chaps on Facebook and Twitter. Or in this cafe. I'm Ben McKenzie, and for perhaps the last time, thank you, it's good, keep warm. Whoosh!